0: So we really need to make sure that we have these more nuanced portrayals of non-white people in our stages so that the art form can continue into the 21st century for a diverse audience. That's just the reality of who we are now. So we need to make sure our art reflects that or else it becomes obsolete and irrelevant and frankly boring.
1: Good morning, this is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda-Salgado. New York City is home to some of the top ballet companies in the world. But even the city's most popular productions like the Nutcracker are steeped in racial stereotypes. And it wasn't until this summer that the first dancer of Chinese descent was brought on as a principal dancer at the New York City Ballet. Now, Dancers, choreographers, journalists and activists alike are working together to challenge offensive roles and push a centuries-old art form into the modern era. A documentary titled Beyond Yellow Face is set to be released in 2023. The film follows Phil Chan and Georgina Peskogen, two New York City dancers of Asian descent and co-founders of the Final Bow for Yellow Face movement. Together, they are challenging the world's leading ballet companies to jettison Asian stereotypes, including dancing and Yellowface. Today, I speak to Phil Chan, as well as Beyond Yellowface director and producer Jennifer Lin, about the problems addressed in the film.
0: Uh, my name is Phil Chan. I'm the co-founder of Final Bow for Yellow Face. Um, I'm a author, choreographer, a director, um, and an advocate. Um, Final Bow for Yellow Face came about about 6 years ago when the New York City Ballet uh, artistic director at the time Peter Martins called me to his office to discuss uh, the second act of George Balanchine's Nutcracker. Uh, there were audience members who were not comfortable with how the different nationalities are portrayed in in the Nutcracker, but also Peter at the same time didn't feel like he could change the ballet itself. So we looked at the history of how Asians have historically been represented on stage. We looked at the context around how the ballet was made and and how uh, the different cultures were represented And based on that conversation, Peter made subtle changes to the makeup, the choreography, and the costuming of the Nutcracker. And so I I left that meeting, I called my very good friend Georgina Pascogan, who's the first Asian American soloist, female soloist at New York City Ballet. And in that moment, we realized we had an opportunity to start a larger conversation around how we represent non-Europeans on the ballet stage. So we bought yellowface.org for $10, and we put up a simple pledge that essentially says, I love ballet as an art form, and I'm committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And because of that, I'm committed to no longer uh, having yellowface on our stages. And uh, you know, we went around to pretty much as many artistic directors as we could get to. And at this point, six years out, pretty much every major American ballet company has signed the pledge. A lot of the big uh, international uh, companies have also signed, like the National Ballet of Canada, uh, the Royal Ballet in London, the Scottish Ballet, um, the Australian Ballet. And last year, the Paris Opera Ballet did a diversity report in which they cited our work as a contributing factor to their decision at the opera and the ballet to no longer do blackface or yellowface. So we've really um, seen a beautiful ripple effect on how we represent non-white people on the ballet stages without resorting to cancel culture and basically just throwing out anything that was made by a European artist. We're instead asking for better portrayals within the existing work.
1: Would you mind giving me an example of what that would look like in a ballet?
0: Yeah. So I think the Nutcracker is a really great example to highlight how our work is the opposite of cancel culture. So if you think about the Nutcracker, it's a ballet from Europe uh, from the 1890s. And for a lot of ballet companies, it represents up to 60% of a company's annual income that they can make is from Nutcracker ticket sales. So it's a really important part of our economic ecosystem that allows us to commission more daring works, commission works by, by women choreographers, by choreographers of color, which historically have, have not had a voice. So, you know, one one way to do it is to say, well, let's cut the Nutcracker completely and let's have a Chinese choreographer make a new Christmas ballet, right? But then we're losing all of that revenue that traditionally has brought in new audiences. So what we're trying to say instead is saying, is there another way to do the Nutcracker that is uh, multiracial? and its approach, as opposed to being strictly Eurocentric, which a lot of traditional productions are. So looking at cultures, not as we're at the center and all these other exotic people are dancing around us, but saying, hey, these are all the flavors that exist within who we are as a people, as a society, as a community. Um, so it's a slightly different approach, but it's one that you know will we'll hopefully get this next generation of young folks, which are much, much more diverse you know, with every generation, to get them to see themselves on stage reflected, which will then get them to fall in love with the art. Art form and want to stay with it and become a student or become a a continued audience member a subscriber maybe even a board member Um, so we really need to make sure that we have these more nuanced portrayals of non-white people in our stages so that the art form can continue into the 21st century for a diverse audience that's just the reality of who we are now so we need to make sure our art reflects that or else it becomes obsolete and irrelevant and frankly boring
1: and how can this movement, like, inspire other art forms?
0: This this conversation isn't just happening in ballet. Um, there are, are complementary conversations happening everywhere. Uh, my very good friend, Naina Yoshida Nelson, um, heads up the uh, Asian Opera Alliance, which is doing a lot of this important work in opera, which is a twin art form to ballet, you know, also very Eurocentric. There's the there's there's CAPE, the Coalition for Asian Pacifics and Entertainment. Uh, on the West Coast, that's been doing this work in film and television for many, many years already. Um, the Theater Communications Group has been hosting conversations like "Beyond Orientalism" um, for for theater. So, so you know, many other performing art forms um, and you know, art expressions, art, art outlets are really asking these questions very much in tandem alongside us. So, I'm really glad that we can contribute to ballet as in this way to keep this art form going alongside these other art forms, which are also asking similar questions
1: what have been some of like the major challenges?
0: Yeah, I think doing advocacy work, it's, um, It's hard because it's not like a normal job, right? Like we're not getting paid to do this. We're doing this because it's the right thing to do. And to be able to make time out of our lives to devote to doing this advocacy, to also make sure we're taking care of ourselves as well. Both Gina and I encountered the feeling of burnout as an advocate when you're just, you care so much about an issue and you're pushing so hard that it can be easy sometimes to just kind of overextend yourself. So finding a balance to saying, hey, I care about this issue a lot. Lot, but I also need to make sure that my own safety mask is is secured before I help someone else you know so really finding times to recharge and and regroup to be a better advocate. I think it was pretty hard at first when we encountered quite a bit of resistance um, quite a, a bit of hate mail, um, a lot of online trolls um, that's subsided. You know, significantly, um, we it still does happen from time to time, um, especially when like a big story comes out, especially internationally. People just don't understand sometimes, or it's very easy to misunderstand the this conversation, and or it's easier to not have this conversation. Um, so people tend to shut down. So you know that 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 was hard at first, and especially I think as an advocate, you. You can't afford to be thick-skinned, right? You know, there's this saying like, oh, just toughen up. You know, you need thick skin, but it's actually being an advocate has taught me that you need quite thin skin. You need to be sensitive. You need to be listening. Um, and it's in that sensitivity and that vulnerability that there's incredible strength. <laughs> it's it's a challenge, but it's it's worth it when you think about what future generations will reap um, from the wealth that we're we're planting now.
1: And would you mind telling me a little bit about how you got involved with the documentary? Can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect? Sure.
0: Yeah, I, I uh, Corey, uh, who is one of the the producers of the film, um, she reached out and she she offered to help with some some press outreach. Uh, she's also of Chinese descent uh, and wanted to highlight our mission and try to to, to broaden our reach. Um, at the same time, Jennifer Lin, who she's connected with, is just finished producing her first uh, docu- full-length documentary, Beethoven in Beijing, about classical music, classical Western music in China. And you know, was looking for another story, another subject that was on a similar similar theme or a complementary theme. And so Corey connected us with Jennifer and it seemed like our mission and what we were doing and our approach really resonated with her. So uh, she's been following us for about a year now. I think she's set to follow us through 2024 with um, the premiere of my new production of La Bayadere, sort of a reimagined 19th century ballet that originally is sort of an Indian and pastiche sort of the Aida of Ballet, you know, melodramatic love triangle set in sort of a fantasy India. Um, and so reimagining that work again for a multiracial audience, which will include Indian people in the audience. So how do we tell this story when it's culturally not really Indian? And and yeah, so I think they're they're just following our our journey as we're exploring this conversation, deepening this conversation, repeating this conversation to really help folks. Think about race and talk about race and talk about how we represent each other better. And and I think using ballet as a way to have some of those hard conversations can actually be quite generative and quite productive and quite illuminative uh, because there are no words in ballet. It's and a lot of it's open to interpretation, you know. So it really can be a vessel for us to talk about race in a very interesting way. So I think that's what the film is is going to try and do. And the little bits I've seen so far are have been very exciting to see. And, and I really hope that the larger message of our work resonates through this film, which is a plea to see each other better, to see each other with more nuance, right? The, the world is going through some pretty challenging times. There's, there's war, there's looming geopolitical conflict You know, across cultural lines, especially with Asia. And I would love to make sure that I'm doing everything in my power to make sure that we're seeing each other with nuance, with humanity, so that when the, you know, the next big geopolitical crisis happens, um, all of us Americans are all on the same side as Americans and not divided by a race or our culture.
1: As Phil explained, Beyond Yellow Face is about far more than ballet. It teaches universal lessons of compassion and empathy director and producer Jennifer Lynn hopes that viewers will think hard about these lessons.
2: Andrea, I'm a longtime newspaper reporter. My background's in journalism. I spent 31 years working for the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I I left the paper in uh, 2014 because I wanted to try new types of storytelling. I launched a documentary about the Philadelphia Orchestra's legacy in China, And uh, the orchestra was the first American orchestra to perform in China and really was part of the whole process of renewing relations with China. And I was kind of looking for a next project to do. And and the way this came about was, I'll never forget, like my daughter in the summer of 2020 gave me a book called Final Bow for Yellowface, which was written by Phil Chan. And so she gave me this book and it immediately resonated with me. And so I thought the two people who are behind the Final Bow for Face movement would be the excellent subject for a documentary. And those two people are Phil Chan and Georgina Pascogin. Phil is a dancer in New York and a choreographer. And Georgina dances. uh, She's a soloist for the New York City Ballet. And the two of them are really shaking up the ballet world. And what they're doing specifically is they're challenging ballet companies and dancers and artistic directors to really kind of banish offensive racial stereotypes from classic ballets, beloved ballets that we all know, like The Nutcracker. Then there's another one called La La Bayadere, which is very problematic. And then the other thing that Phil and Gina are doing is they're, they're really trying to push the ballet world to be more expansive to include more dancers and choreographers of color. And you know, when Phil's book came out, again it was the summer of 2020 and we all know like that was a summer, you know, of of great it was a summer of reckoning, really, I think, for the country. And there was there was a lot of violence. There was anti-Asian hate crimes that were really spiking. And I just thought it was a, a good time to kind of look at this issue. It's it's the issue of representation in the arts, really.
1: Can you explain what Yellowface is and why it's so problematic?
2: Yellowface is similar to blackface, and it's people in ballet. Dancers who, you know, apply kind of the exaggerated makeup on their faces. So it's kind of shorthand for like the, the depiction of, of racial stereotypes. You know, ballet, like opera, is an art form that really sprang from from the imagination of European um, men back in the 18th, 19th century. And so a lot of the, the classic ballets that we, we love really um, have their origins in Europe. And so, you know, at the time, not many Europeans had the opportunity to travel to China or Japan. So some operas, some ballets are really based on kind of the imaginations of their creators. And some of those depictions are, are really kind of caricatures, cliches at best, kind of offensive stereotypes at worst. So that's what Yellowface is. is. And, and they're there are some ballet companies that still perform some ballets in yellowface and blackface, And so what, what they have been doing over the past five years is saying, we can do better. I love ballet and I want it to, to grow as an art form. Uh, but I think for ballet to really expand into the next century, it, it needs to kind of deal with some of these issues. So partly this just grew out of my love of ballet. And frankly, I'm just really intrigued by Phil and Gina and what they're doing. They're ordinary people who have already kind of been the, the force behind extraordinary change in,
1: in the ballet world. What has been the biggest challenge working on this project so far?
2: You know, it's, it's really interesting. Like when I, when I talk to, to some groups, they get the story immediately. Like if you talk to Asian Americans, they understand. What you're talking about, but just having other viewers of the film, you know, kind of understand where we're coming from. And I think, like, one of the knee-jerk reactions is, "Oh, this is cancel culture." It's not. We're, we're not canceling anything. But could you make it better? You know, Phil has has advised a, a ballet company in Scotland, Scottish National Ballet, which last year revised its Chinese dance, and the artistic director you know, he said, my dancers just don't want to do the old version, you know? So I, I just think it's 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 a perfect time to kind of be looking at this issue. Anything that has
1: surprised you about working in this film?
2: Um, surprise me. There's always surprises when you're making a film and in, in like turns in the story that you didn't anticipate. You know, one of the revelations, I would say, is how it's not just ballet that we're talking about. It's also the opera world. It's also orchestras that are kind of grappling with some of these very same issues.
1: If you'd like to support the creators of Beyond Yellowface, consider making a contribution on their website, beyondyellowface.com. You can also help by simply spreading the word. Make sure to follow Beyond Yellow Face on social media. We've linked to their accounts in our show notes. Before we go, our new weekly update on monkeypox in New York City. Make sure to stay tuned for the latest information on vaccine, testing, care options, and much more.
3: Hi, I'm Sam Zacher, back with this week's New York City monkeypox update. Last week, I answered some questions about how to keep yourself healthy if you're diagnosed with monkeypox. If you'd like to learn more, make sure to listen to last week's episode. Today, I'll be going over new changes to monkeypox vaccine eligibility. Late last week, the New York City Department of Health announced that you can now get a second dose as long as it has been at least 28 days after your first dose. Previously, individuals were required to wait at least 10 weeks after getting their first dose to get their second. So if you've already received your first dose of the monkeypox vaccine, make sure to check your calendar and see if you're eligible under these new requirements. Beyond shortening the interval between the first and second dose, the Department of Health made another big announcement last week. They've officially expanded eligibility to people who are under 18 and who meet all other eligibility criteria. Keep in mind, minors 15 or younger must have an adult caregiver accompanying them. If you need a refresher on the additional eligibility criteria, make sure to listen to our second Monkeypox update that was published on September 7th. You can also visit the New York City Department of Health website, linked to in our show notes. Also last week, over 50,000 new first and second dose appointments were made available, but if you need additional help getting a monkeypox vaccine, you can also always reach out to us at vaccine at epicenter-nyc.com or fill out a request on our vaccine intake form linked to in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Join us weekly for more news and information on monkeypox in New York City. Keep in mind that things are changing quickly. So if you have any specific questions or, again, need help finding a vaccine, reach out to us directly at vaccine at epicenter-nyc.com or call 917-818-2690.
1: For more ways to get involved in your community, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website linked to in our
0: podcast description.